This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. If there's such a thing as an insolvency trend, we seem to be in the midst of a fashion for retailers entering into company voluntary arrangements. House of Fraser, Clark's, New Look and Debenhams, as well as restaurants such as Pizza Express, have all put forward CDA proposals during recent years, especially since COVID. In today's Property Patter, I'm joined by Dan Moore and Roger Elford of our insolvency team to talk about how CVAs work and what we're seeing in practice when it comes to the implications of these arrangements for landlords. So let's start with the basics. Dan, perhaps you wouldn't mind uh, just explaining in summary what a CVA actually is. Thank you, Emma. A CVA is a restructuring tool introduced by Part 1 of the Insolvency Act 1986. It was introduced as um, really a cost-efficient and simple process by which a company could reach a compromise with its creditors. At its core, the focus of a CVA is to ensure the survival of a company and its business on a going concern basis. There are various procedural steps required to implement a CVA, but in summary, a CVA is approved and binds all creditors, assuming that 75% of all creditors support the proposal, and that is 75% in value of those voting at a creditors' meeting. A traditional concept of a CVA would be a compromise with all creditors. Um, typically, the CVA proposal would reduce the liabilities owed to all creditors and fund payments to those creditors by way of, for example, contributions from a third party, perhaps a capital injection by shareholders, a more formal financial restructuring by way of new loan facilities, or in some cases, distributions from trading receipts, for example, over a, a three to five year period. So there is some flexibility as to how the CVA can be structured. It is often the case that CVA proposals are combined with improvements to management so that a fresh start is made for the business going forward. In all CVAs, the management team remains in control and the company trades as a going concern. The traditional concept of a CVA remains. The nature of CVA proposals have developed. They are now increasingly complex and can in some cases be costly, typically as a result of the underlying complexity of the business. For example, Emma, as you mentioned, there is a current trend for CVAs of retail and casual dining businesses that have large property portfolios. And we have seen the rise of the concept of the landlord-only CVA. This has been controversial in some cases, as landlords are often the only creditors uh, that are compromised and all other trade creditors are paid in full. One key issue in relation to CVAs is that there is no moratorium specific to CVAs. There was previously for certain small companies, but it may be possible to combine um, a CVA proposal with other insolvency processes, such as a moratorium under the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020, or alternatively using a CVA as an exit strategy from an administration. So how are CVAs currently being used and what's their impact on landlords, Roger? Uh, thanks, Emma. So I think it's fair to say that the um, relationship between landlords and tenants, particularly in a retail setting, and we keep coming back to retail because we're talking about old companies operating with lots of sites, but there have been tensions over the years. Traditionally, lease lengths of shop premises have been quite long. Over the years, there's been downward pressure to bring them shorter. Uh, tenants wanting more flexibility, wanting more breaks. And the concept of the upward-only rent review clause has obviously been a difficult area of contention for the years. And with the impact of the rise of the internet, Amazon, et cetera, online shopping taking more priority. And then, of course, since March last year, the impact of COVID, retailers have been really feeling the pinch as a result, as a consequence, been turning to CVA as a solution in their eyes to address these issues, particularly in circumstances where, of course, many shops have remained closed and not been able to trade and just simply haven't had the income to service their rental obligations to the landlords. 
This in turn, of course, has caused issues for landlords uh, as well. You know, landlords are highly geared often, uh, and we've seen various landlords um, struggling and even failing, for example, in relation to Into, which obviously focused on, on shopping centre leases over the years. So, um, you know, there's, 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 not a, there's not a goodie and a baddie in this scenario. Um, both landlords and tenants have suffered. But it's fair to say, as Dan mentioned, the, the, the rise of the sort of turnover CVA, the landlord CVA, has really been the focus um, of the last 12 months. So um, a retailer with multiple sites will make a proposal to its creditors that essentially all other trade creditors will continue to be paid in full in the ordinary course of business, whereas landlords will be separated into, say, five categories, uh, category one being those landlords with the best leases, the leases that the shop, the retailer are desperate to keep, category five being those that they want to close. And categories two, three, four in between are those sites where if they could reduce the rent, perhaps they could break even in the future and continue trading. So the, the purpose of the CBA then is to is to readjust and re-gear the rental obligations of the tenant and to effectively impose a new rental regime on those landlords for a set period usually, the, the duration of the CBA, normally sort of three to five years. And in the current climate, what's being used is that tenants are saying to landlords, well, we will pay you a percentage of turnover uh, rather than the rent passing under the lease as provided for in the lease. But what they're also doing is taking out any form of minimum guarantee that you'd normally perhaps expect to see in a rental provision in a lease. You know, tenants sometimes are attracted by turnover style um, provisions in their, in their leases, but so are landlords because they provide at least a, a minimal rental guarantee and the landlord gets the upside. But in this case, in most CBA cases now, that minimum rental guarantee is, is coming out. So landlords are entirely reliant on tenants generating income in their stores in order to make, make any payments at all to the landlord. The other contentious point about a lot of these CVAs is that the companies, the tenants in question, whilst agreeing to continue to pay their other trade creditors in full, they're not offering landlords anything in relation to their arrears. And that, I think, is, is, is quite unusual. It's quite punchy from those advising tenants. Ordinarily, you'd expect to see some sort of pot, some sort of fund put in place for those creditors who were aggrieved and prejudiced by the CVA, either immediately through some form of cash injection from a parent or from future trading receipts. There'd be an earn-out provision. If the retailer did well in the future, then the landlord would share in some of the upside to recoup some of their arrears. We haven't seen that in this case so much. And, and that's probably why we're seeing several high-profile challenges that are currently going before the courts, which I know we'll, we'll come on to in a minute. Um, the only other point I'd note, and it comes back to some previous challenges, is that if you come across and if you are a landlord or a, or a surveyor or an agent advising a landlord and a CVA comes across your desk, which seeks to impose a significant rent reduction or any rent reduction uh, on a tenant going forward, uh, then that CVA ought also to provide that landlord with the ability to take its property back if it's not prepared to take um, that rent reduction. If it doesn't provide for that, there are very strong grounds that that CVA could be challenged as being unfairly prejudicial. Yes, there's a lot there that um, the landlords won't like the sound of, that's for sure. Right. Um, and I think there's also some interesting uh, issues around, you know, you've mentioned there that these things can go on for three to five years. And of course, lease renewals under 54 Act may well arise during that time. And, you know, so then there's, I think, some potentially further interesting arguments to possibly have uh, on that side as well as you know as markets there, change and that sort of thing there, there absolutely are emma and, and, and i think as, as, as dan said you know cvas used to be a bit of a blunt tool 
you know, they're now, they're now running to hundreds of pages. And so their provisions are complex. They will address issues with you know, where release falls due for renewal during the three or five year period. There'll be provisions in there as to what the tenant will pay, what the tenant won't pay, uh, what they'll do in relation to rent reviews, what they'll do in relation to the lapse, the ability of one party to serve notice on the other, to take the property back at any particular point in time. Um, but they are becoming very sophisticated beasts. And, and landlords are arguing that's not what CVAs are about. It was supposed to be a one-size-fits-all. You hit every creditor with a 40% reduction on what you owe them, uh, and everyone moves on. Um, this isn't a scheme of arrangement under the Companies Act. And, and, that's, and that's forming part of the basis of the challenges we're seeing from landlords at the moment. Yeah, I find that really interesting, actually, because that's definitely, you know, I started off by saying there's this trend for CVAs now. I feel like very definitely I've seen so many more CVAs, but also, as you say, the complexity of them, the length of them. Um, I mean, when when they first started arriving, when COVID hit and they first started arriving on my desk and I did my usual of kind of pinging it out to one of you uh, and saying, oh, can you just take a look at that for me? Because you know, it used to be the case that you'd just take a quick look at it for me and say, oh, yeah, it's a 40% reduction. This is how it's going to work. Um, and then um, I think there was one in particular I said, that is 400 pages long. It's like, I, I'm going to need a bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a lot to take in for landlords, isn't it? You know, not everyone wants to spend their money on, on lawyers looking at 400-page CVA either when they're owed rent. It, it absolutely is. It can make a massive difference to the landlord how they're impacted. You know, if they're in a Category C or a Category D or a Category E, you know, if, if, if it hits the landlord's desk uh, on, a, on a Monday, they pass it on to their agents on a Thursday, it goes to the lawyers on a Friday, and all of a sudden, in less than a week's time, you've got the creditors meeting to vote on these proposals. Uh, that can undo the next, you know, five years of your trading relationship with your tenant. So you've got to act quickly. And, and as you say, you know, two or 300 pages to digest, there will be elements in pages 10 to 15 that will affect you in page 73 and 74 that will affect you and in pages 192 that will affect you. So you've got to read the whole thing, sadly. Yeah, it's so true. You heard it here first, though, people. They're the pages to look out for. Um, no, I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting how it's changed. Landlords will not like uh, a lot of what we're talking about here and, and the implications. Dan, you know, when landlords get a CVA proposal, what rights do they have? Thanks, Roger. And thanks, Emma. Uh, landlords obviously have um, the right to review the CVA proposals. Um, and it is a requirement that the written proposals are provided to them. Um, the landlords can raise questions with the company. Um, so the company would have proposed the CVA and or the nominee. Um, landlords will be given notice of a meeting of creditors and will have an opportunity to vote for or against the CVA. It's important really that the landlord must ensure that the calculation of its claim against the company is correct, um, as this will determine its voting rights. Um, the method of calculation is likely to be set out in the CVA and is likely to require um, often surveyor input. Yes, because I mean, again, that's something we've seen, isn't it? You, you know, that these these calculations, they're quite complex because they can in, because they include the future rent as well as the arrears owed at the date of the CVA. So that's another thing that takes some time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And as Roger said, you know, there will be sections of the CVA um, spread throughout the CVA that are relevant. And often you'll find towards the back of the CVA tucked away in the schedules, an explanation by the company basically put together by the nominee and its chosen surveyor of how landlords claims should be calculated. So the company itself will provide its indicative assessment of what the valuation should be. 
Um, but it's very important for the landlords to make sure that that is correct, because obviously it governs the voting rights, because the voting rights are done by the value of the claim. Um, and there will be a, a fairly comprehensive um, methodology for um, producing and preparing the claim. So it's not just looking at, you know, simply what arrears do you have? Um, what's the term of the lease? What would you ordinarily be entitled to receive by way of rent every year? Um, it's a much more complicated assessment taking into account um, the future receipt of funds um, and, and applying a discount over a period of time. Um, historically, um, nominees and companies, when they're assessing voting rights for landlords and taking into account future rate, uh, sorry, future rents, would have applied quite severe discounts. But now they're taking a much more um, fact-specific approach, and they're being very careful about the quantification and valuation of landlords' claims because it is so important to um, the voting rights and ultimately whether they can resist a challenge in the future. So it's a, it's a really important area for landlords to to hone in on, not just looking at how does the CVA affect them, but actually how do they calculate their vote correctly. And what about uh, the landlord's ability to challenge the CBA then? Uh, yeah, there are various escape hatches and safety valves um, for landlords. Um, if the CBA is approved, um, then there are um, the following basis for challenge effectively. Uh, pursuant to Section 6 of the Insolvency Act, um, 1986, a creditor can apply to court on the basis that a CBA unfairly prejudices the interests of a creditor or that there has been a material irregularity at or in relation to a meeting. So in relation to unfair prejudice, which is where we see a lot of the challenges arising, it's going to the question of fairness. You know, is the CVA as proposed fair and in the interests of all creditors? And without getting into too much detail, what we started to look at is the idea of a horizontal and a vertical comparison. So when you're assessing fairness, you're looking horizontally between the different classes of creditor. So, you know, if there is a landlord who is receiving a discount at, say, 50%, is that fair that, for example, there may be a trade, trade creditor that is receiving only a 20% discount or, in fact, being paid in full? So you look across the classes of creditor and you say, well, actually, how are they all being treated and does it work together and is it fair? Um, and, and also, you'll have a vertical comparison, which is looking um, at a CVA compared to different insolvency procedures. So you might look at the outcome under a liquidation, which is effectively the floor, because that is the return in a, in a terminal kind of shutdown scenario. Or you might compare it to what would be the outcome under administration. So you need to be able to demonstrate, um, well, the, the company and the, and the nominee need to be able to demonstrate that obviously horizontally it's fair and vertically the CVA is, is the best option. If you're starting to um, get home on a, on a, on a challenge, um, the court has the power to revoke or suspend the CVA and ultimately has a discretion to order um, directions in relation to specific aspects of the CVA. So it could just tweak little bits where it needs to adjust fairness. Um, it's quite flexible. Um, also, pursuant to Section 7 of the Insolvency Act, a creditor may apply to court if it's dissatisfied with any act or omission or a decision of the CVA supervisor. So that's looking at decisions you know, post the CVA um, that the supervisor may take. And the supervisor will effectively be the individual that was or the individuals that were the nominee. So they start as the nominee overseeing the proposal. It gets approved and then they take a supervisory role to make sure that the CVA is put into, um, into effect. Ultimately, the CVA proposals must be fit, feasible and fair. Uh, these are the core guiding principles for the CVA and which will be the heart of any challenge. Uh, finally, if a CVA is approved and any subsequent challenge is not successful, then the landlord's rights, um, along with any other creditors, will be pursuant to the terms of the CVA. So presumably, tenant companies look to structure their CVA proposals to be fair for landlords to try to reduce the likelihood of a challenge. So what should landlords look out for when they're reviewing CVA proposals? I probably should add just 
linked to the discussion we just had, there is um, a very short time frame for challenges. So the, the landlord should first have its eye on the clock. Um, so you're looking from the date of the approval. It's a 28 um, day period, for example, to start an unfair prejudice um, claim. So that would be number one. Um, I think when landlords are more generally looking at the CVA, it's probably very useful for them to have at hand um, the British Property Federation guidance, which has introduced red flag clauses. Those cover a variety of clauses, which the BPF have said, look, you know, a clause structured in this way or a, or a CVA proposal structured in this way just won't work. So the BPF, for starters, want um, advance notice and discussion so they can discuss with landlords and they can review the, the CVA in advance. Um, they have flagged that they require CVAs um, to include details of financial restructuring and actual management restructuring as well. So it's not just the idea of a compromise in the CVA. There has to be some plan and, and future plan for how the how the company will survive and trade through the CVA and ultimately come out the other side as a, as a trading concern, a going concern. They need to justify if they're impairing only one class of creditor. So if they are just um, seeking to do a compromise with landlords, they need to be able to explain the, the financial basis um, and the reason for, for example, paying trade creditors um, in full. When uh, looking at rent, they, they need to make sure that rent is not falling below market value. So they need to make a, an assessment of the viability of each property and actually what is the, the market value and what, what would be the market test for, for rent under that property. And that's key, I think, Roger, to what you were saying about how you know, the, the, the market value is potentially changing because you know, in the casual dining and retail space, um, those property uh, or the viability of properties has been collapsing. So, you know, when you're looking at market rent, you know, there's going to be a real, real tension between what the landlord thinks is market rent and what the tenant thinks is market rent. And that's probably where we, we will see some challenges. Yeah, Dan, and, connect, and connected to that, as I mentioned before, if, if you are going to propose a CVA that seeks to effectively reduce your contractual obligation to your landlords uh, to the detriment of that landlord, but for the benefit of all your other creditors, um, then the law says that you ought to give um, uh, that landlord the option to say, well, okay, thanks, but no thanks. I want to take my property back. Um, so um, there's a case, Thomas and Ken Thomas, which was confirmed again in, in the Debenhams case a couple of years ago, uh, where the landlords, you know, where, the, where the judges said, well, if you're going to, you know, in terms of future liabilities, you've got to give that landlord the option to take the property back if you're not happy. So if, if you are a landlord of a of what you deem to be a very valuable store for the tenant, uh, you would expect that tenant to be continuing to pay you in full or something like in full, uh, because if you um, because linked to that, the CVA also cannot remove a landlord's proprietary right to forfeit. So of course, the fact that the tenant has proposed a CVA in the first place will almost certainly be a breach uh, of of the of the forfeiture clause, breach of the lease. Know, giving the landlord a right to forfeit, uh, and that 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 right cannot be taken away by a CVA, uh, confirmed by the judge in the Debenhams case in 2019. Um, so uh, even if the CVA goes through, the landlord will still maintain a right to forfeit the lease for the fact that the company proposed a CVA in the first place. So that that right still remains very powerful in favour of the landlord. And actually, all of the notwithstanding, they're now hundreds of pages long. All of the current CVAs do still provide that, expressly provide that uh, the landlord's rights of forfeiture um, will not be removed or waived by the CVA itself, which is, again, is a departure from what CVAs were looking like two or three years ago before that case. Um, 
And I suppose in, just in the meantime, in terms of the current current challenges, there is a number of challenges currently going before the court. Um, the, the two big ones are Regis, uh, which the trial of which was due to take place uh, March uh, 2020 and was adjourned for another year. It's going to be heard next next month. Uh, and the New Look CVA challenge as well, brought by uh, the same set of lawyers for a similar set of landlords, if you like. Um, and they're challenging the CVA not only on those, those types of issues, issues of fairness, issues, um, uh, issues of uh, landlords being unfairly prejudiced against the interests of other um, uh, trade creditors. Yeah, they're also saying, back to the point we made earlier, that CVAs have gone way beyond what Section 1 of the Insolvency Act ever intended CVAs to be used for. You know, if you want to split out creditors into classes and pay one in full and one not in full, you should be using a, a different mechanism. You should be using a scheme of arrangement. Um, and uh, it remains to be seen uh, what the verdict is. Both, both, both hearings, both matters uh, will come to trial uh, in March. Uh, so watch this space and there will be, uh, there will be um, reported case law on, on all of these points um, uh, next, next month. Um, as I say, the Regis challenge is pretty comprehensive. Um, and uh, and I'm sure the um, New Look Challenge largely apes that and may may expand upon it as well. Um, I was on the receiving end of one of these challenges from the same group of landlords last year, um, so I know the arguments they're running. Um, and as I say, it'll be a, it'll be a fiercely contested battle and and may well set some serious precedents. Yes, I can imagine that's going to be a real battle, actually, and a very interesting case. So, um, yes, perhaps we'll, we'll definitely regroup after we've got the benefit of those uh, those decisions and, um, and, 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 and see what we think of them. Um, and, and actually, you raise an interesting point there as well, which I should just remind listeners about um, with my uh, real estate disputes hat on, um, about the fact that obviously everyone thinks forfeiture is off the table at the moment with COVID, um, given the restrictions that are in place. Uh, but of course, it's, it's forfeiture for arrears that's off the table, um, other breaches, you know, there, there is still the option of exercising the right to forfeit. And of course, insolvency, if the lease says, yeah, it's the, the relevant um, uh, event of default, if you like, that engages the right to forfeit, um, then that that could still be uh, an option, obviously subject to any moratorium, you get the moratorium with administrations and that sort of thing, don't you? But um, it's a very good point for people to, to bear in mind. And, um, you know, you're mentioning there, Roger, about the, the cases, um, you know, we're definitely going to see some interesting cases on CVAs, the ones we already know about, and I suspect a, a lot more. Um, you know, do you think there's some future trends we're expecting to see, perhaps especially around the idea of these landlord-only CVAs? I think inevitably, Emma, it, we're going to see more CVAs this year. Um, and I say that because so many retailers and so many other, other businesses have been put on pause for the last year. Uh, they haven't paid any rent. Or very little rent. In most cases, landlords haven't just waived the rent, they've deferred it uh, either in whole or in part. Uh, and so even businesses that have sort of been in a, in a safe state of stasis for the last 12 months, ready to reopen again in April or whenever the next lockdown is lifted, are still going to have a massive rent liability for arrears that they just don't have the means to, to service, to satisfy. So even the best companies, the best companies, the best funded companies, the companies with the best business plans to continue, I think are going to have to find ways of addressing those rent arrears. And a CVA to me seems like an obvious example of a way of doing that, going to landlords 
uh, and potentially other creditors, um, the revenue, although the revenue status has changed recently, um, having been reinstated as a preferential creditor, but back to back the landlords, to go to landlords and say, well, look, we think we can pay you your rent going forward, no problem. Yeah, we might like to pay you monthly rather than quarterly, we might, you know, but we don't want to adjust our rent commitment going forward. But we do have to find a way of addressing our liability for arrears because we simply can't pay them. So we'll pay you XP in the pound now, or we'll pay you XP in the pound now, uh, and a further 10% of profits for the next five years or something. And, and I think we'll see CBA structured in that way um, to not just not just address future rent commitments, but also deal actually now deal with the arrears that have arisen. Uh, but as I say, I think the way in which those are structured and, 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 and how prevalent they are will partly depend on the outcome of these cases next month, because I think it had become, become broadly accepted that, you know, I think there's been trends with CBAs, the British Property Federation have been supportive, landlords have been supportive, and then, and then certain cases come along and that have maybe pushed the boundaries too far, and landlords have recoiled and said, no, that's too much. You know, we've had powerhouse in the, in the, in the past, powerhouse case, which sought to remove guarantees from, uh, from landlords, and that was, that was a red line. We had the Miss 60 case talking about the way in which um, insolvency practitioners go about valuing landlords' losses. And, and, and again, there was a guillotine came down. I think CVAs have definitely have gone back on the up again, and landlords are starting to think, oh, okay, well, they're sort of a necessary evil, for want of a better word. But now, so many retailers have done it, and and they're not just cutting, they're not just dealing with the arrears, they're, they're imposing these massive swinging turnover rents with no minimum guarantee. So landlords have gone back to defensive mode. You know, we've got we've got to defend this in order to survive. Yes, I think there's some very interesting battles coming up, and. Um you know, and obviously the impact on the market of, of COVID, we've, we've seen a very drastic initial impact, but as it settles down, I think it's going to become, uh, you know, a, a very interesting place to, um, to to be in, actually, to, to work with. Um, well, thanks very much, both. That's been a great overview of how CVAs work um, and the areas of potential challenge. It certainly seems we're going to have some interesting court decisions during this year. So, We'll take a look at those on a future property patter once we have them. In the meantime, thanks to our listeners for joining us today. And please do email any one of us if you would like a copy of our note on frequently asked questions for landlords dealing with CBA. In the meantime, this stay is safe. The Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.